Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It was a cool morning next to the Sea of Galilee. A storm had just blown in the night before, and there on the shore was a man looking out to the sea. And his eyes were wild, his body was shaking, he was full of demons. The night before, he had screamed through the night, he had yelled and been destructive and had run wild, naked around a graveyard. And this man was full of sin and demonic powers. But on that shoreline, there was a boat. And out of that boat stepped Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the one who can transform. And a man there in that graveyard brought fear into the hearts of people in the town. They tried to actually have times where they subdued him with chains and he would not be subdued. But then Jesus stepped out and he walked up to that man, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who had no fear. And he's told that man, come out of you, come out, um, unclean spirits. If you remember the story in Mark chapter 5, that man screamed, really the demon within him screamed, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Don't torment me. And Jesus then commanded that demon to come out. At that moment, Jesus supernaturally changed that man. At that moment, Jesus caused that man who was dead in his trespasses and sins, a man who followed the the prince of this world, Satan, a man who followed his own sinful desires, a man who, who lived like really every other person does in this world in disobedience to God, he caused this man to become alive. As Ephesians chapter four says, God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us and really In this story, this man, even when he was dead in his sins, God made him alive together in Christ, and it's by grace he was saved. But I want you to think about that moment as this man is changed. He comes into his right mind. The demon has left him. His soul has come alive, and now he's able to glorify and praise God. And after this happened, this man, he... He wanted to spend more time with Jesus. I mean, Jesus goes to get back in the boat with his disciples to go over the other side. And this this man tells Jesus, and actually the Bible says, begged Jesus, please let me go with you. I want to follow you and be with you. And Jesus told this man, no, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You know, often when people come to Christ, and God changes their heart, and he changes their mind, he changes their joy, they often think to themselves, okay, since God has changed me on the inside, then something needs to change on the outside. Maybe my location, maybe my job, maybe I need to get out of this marriage. And some people can be tempted to think that because God changes their inside, therefore that there has to be something radical that happens in their life in regard to their environment. And what this story, I think, illustrates for us is what Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
And that is that God saves a person, God redeems a person, and God sends that person many times back into the situation that they were saved in, and he seeks to redeem that situation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul dealt with some difficult issues like struggling marriages and someone being a widow or a widower or someone single that doesn't want to be single or someone who's a slave or someone who's in a difficult ethnic or cultural setting that's uncomfortable. And when you're in those kind of situations, sometimes you automatically think like, how can I get out of this? Like, how can I, how can I leave this problem? And sometimes you can even think that, that my spiritual problems are related to my environment here. If I just changed my location, if I just got out of this marriage, if I just got a new job, then, then I wouldn't have these spiritual struggles. I, maybe I'd walk with God more if I moved to this place or if I got this job. We live in an age when it's so easy to change, right? It's easy to change your job, or many times it can be. It can be easy to change locations. It's easy to get out of marriages. And we're tempted to think that if I, if I change something, and maybe if I change my marriage or change my church or change my location, then I'll finally be happy. I'll finally be satisfied in the Lord. I'll finally have spiritual peace and inner tranquility. But actually, the Bible teaches, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here teaches that that peace, that satisfaction, it doesn't come in the external change. It comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It comes as we, we are in God's word and we, we're on our knees in prayer as we walk by faith. And Paul's not saying here that you can't ever change anything in your life. It's not what he's saying here. But he's saying that whatever you seek, even when you seek to change something, you should, you should do that in faith in the Lord. And, and in the current context you're in, you should be content in that and abide with God in that. And so really the statement I've been putting before us the past couple weeks is because your life has been divinely appointed, you must glorify and serve God in that assignment. This is what, three weeks ago is where we left off with this. And I think that really summarizes this whole chapter right here, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And if you actually look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at the very end and really how he started into this chapter in verse 20, he says, you were bought with a price. That's the redemption price of Christ's blood on the cross. So glorify God in your body. God created you. God has redeemed you to bring glory to God. And so the question is, how do we glorify God in our body, particularly when we're in certain locations or more, maybe certain occupations or certain difficult situations? What we're learning in here in this text is because God is the one who divinely appoints you to be in those different situations and those different relationships, then you can and you must glorify God and serve him in that assignment. And in the first 16 verses, we looked at how to glorify and serve God within really the context of marriage or maybe outside of the context of marriage. And then verses 17 through 24, we're going to look at here this morning, deal with really two categories. The first category is in verses 17 through 20, and it's really the ethnic cultural distinction. And here it's Jew versus Gentile. 
The second category is found in verses 21 through 24, and it really covers your economic employment situation. And so for this one, it's slave versus free. And I think these two categories actually represent the two major distinctions that pretty much almost every one of us has in here, right? You have some type of economic situation, something you do every day. You have some kind of background, some kind of ethnic, cultural background that influences your life right now. In fact, you might even throw in there another category of male and female. And I think that's why in, in, first, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And Paul's point in this verse right here is that at the foot of the cross, we are all equal in regard to our relationship and our fellowship with God. Yes, people have different roles. Men and women have different roles. We have different places in society, and that's okay. But each person before God has equal access to God. I have just as much grace offered to me from God as you do. Being a pastor doesn't mean I'm automatically at a spiritual advantage or disadvantage. Men don't have more advantage spiritually than women do. If you have a high position or a low position in society, it doesn't mean one's more spiritual than the other. We are all equal in regard to our fellowship with God. We're equal at the foot of the cross. But consider a church full of all these different distinctions and, and how someone might view one group as, as more spiritual than the other. Who can glorify God more? Can a slave glorify God more than a free person? Or maybe a, maybe a free person can glorify God more than a slave. Or maybe a man can glorify God more than a female. Is, what, what's the answer to that? And the answer is, no, all of us can glorify God. All of us can serve God, no matter where we are or what position we have in life. And why is that? Well, that's what this text here teaches us here this morning. And my outline is very simple because it's the same outline I've used the past couple weeks. Some of you wondered how I could prepare to preach. Well, I already studied a couple weeks ago, so, so there you go. And so the question we're going to put out first is how should you glorify God in your body in different ethnic and cultural situations? And our outline's going to be the same for the first couple of verses and for the last couple of verses. And so the first point is abide by faith in that divinely appointed situation Abide by faith in that divinely appointed situation. Look at verse 17. This is a key verse. This is a verse that we must understand. Frankly, this is a verse that would be good for all of us to memorize. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Here, this verse reminds us that there's nothing that happens in our life by accident. The Lord Jesus Christ has assigned you where you are and what you're going through. God has called you to glorify him in the context you are in. That's verse 17. Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you, that God has called you to. And because God is sovereign, we can trust him where we are and with what's going on in our life. And the truth is, if we don't grasp this truth in verse 17, 
that nothing else is really going to make any sense. Nothing else is really going to matter. Because you can't live out the command to abide with God in your situation and serve God in that context unless you believe God is the one who placed you there. In fact, let's just do this. Let's park. Let's, get, let's park our car. Let's get out. Let's look at the mountain of God's sovereignty and just stand in awe and just think about the fact that God is the one who rules over every aspect of this world, which includes my life. Think about Matthew 18, or Matthew 10, sorry, Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, think about a sparrow and how some people might see it as not having much value. You know, if a sparrow is sitting on a fence post and it goes, and it dies, how many people really care? But you know what? God knows, God cares, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He he oversees that as well. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. This is where everyone gives the jokes to Pastor Ben about the hairs on my head. But the amazing reality for my head is that God knows how many hairs I have, even if you don't know. How about Job chapter 42? Job went through many difficult trials, lost his family, lost his home, lost his business. And he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You have complete control. How about the wisest man in the world, Solomon? The law is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's really no such thing as chance. The Lord is the one who decides. Or how about this one, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is working out everything in our life for his glory and for our good, which means this. If you're a child in here, if you're a teenager in here, God puts you in the home you're in. Like he has you there. He gave you those siblings, even if sometimes you don't want those siblings, right? He puts you in that home, which means for us living in Simi Valley or Thousand Oaks or wherever you live, God placed us here. He gave you the neighbors you have. He gave you the job that you have. If you're at Lighthouse, God called you to this church. There's absolutely nothing in our life that God does not oversee. It doesn't mean that I can't change things or it doesn't mean that I shouldn't try to. It's not what his point is here. His point is to trust him, to to see that God has a purpose in that situation. In in that home, God wants to use you in that home. In that place of employment, employment, God has assigned you for a certain mission for you to accomplish there. So verse 17, he, he writes, only let each person lead the life God has assigned to him. This is a present tense. This word lead is a present tense. It means it goes on and on. It's an imperative. It's a command. Literally, it's the word walk. It's the idea that you you keep walking, you keep going. You you don't stop. You, You don't wish your life away. You don't quit. I mean, think about getting on a path and going for a walk. Maybe it's really hot out there and you're thinking, I just want to sit down. I want to stop. 
but, but kind of the idea here is that God puts you on the path you're on in life, and you need to take the next step and the next step and keep going down the path he has for you, and you don't know what God has for you down that path. And why would Paul need to give this command? I think it's because sometimes we can be in a place where we feel like maybe life seems too ordinary. Maybe it's mundane. Maybe it's even difficult. Maybe it's something that we just want to get off this path because it's, it's hard, it's difficult, we're suffering. And sometimes we can imagine that if we just, if we just had a different path, if we just were in a different situation in life, then, then we would have a better walk with God. I mean, Probably my spiritual problem is because I need a different location or I need to have a different job or maybe I would be more fulfilled if I did this. I think about a, a mom that's at home and she has her babies, you know, and you get up in the morning and you clean up after the kids and you feed them and you change their diapers and you kind of sit there and you think to yourself, I did not imagine this would be my life when I was a young person. Or maybe you're in a job and you're sitting behind a desk and you're thinking, this was not the dream job that I had at one time. Or maybe you're in school and you just think, I cannot wait to be done with school. I hate school. <laughs> when is this going to be over? Or maybe you're just in a certain stage of life and you're just like, I can't wait for the next stage. I can't wait till I'm out of high school. I can't wait till I'm out of college. I can't wait till I get married. I can't wait till I have kids. I can't wait till I'm in the nursing home. Okay, nobody says that one. But every, up until that stage, everyone thinks, like, right, I can't wait to the next one. And you're always wishing that you're on a different path. And so God says, no, look at where he's placed you. Take the next step. Abide with the Lord in your divinely appointed role that God has placed you in. And look at verse 17. This, this is very interesting, the very last sentence. This is my rule in all the churches. This isn't just for Lighthouse, not just for the Corinthian church. Can I just tell you? This is what people struggle with all over the world and really all over time. And this, this, this idea of discontentment. And so he first deals with really what I think is an ethnic issue, cultural issue. Look at verse 18. It says, was anyone at the time of his call, and that's the call to be converted. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call, that is the call to be saved, uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So circumcision was a mark that distinguished a man as Jewish. And in the Old Testament, it was a sign of faithfulness to God. But in the New Testament, it's no longer necessary. So I want you to imagine a Gentile. He, he comes to Christ. He, he comes to the church, and he's a part of the church. And he thinks, I just really need that next spiritual step in my life. Like, there's got to be something in my life that can show my dedication to the Lord. And he, he's reading through the Old Testament. He thinks, you know, maybe I should go, ha go through this surgery right here. Maybe this would be something. And so and Paul's saying, no, no, actually, verse 19, it doesn't count for anything. Or maybe there's a, a, a Jew, and he, he's thinking through how he was, grew up, and he was very attached to Judaism, and he was works-based, and he thinks, well, maybe I, need to, maybe I need to reverse this. Maybe that's going to help me be more sanctified in the Lord. And Paul says, no, no, it doesn't count for anything. It doesn't matter. But what matters? Look at verse 19. What matters? Not the religious ritual, but what? But keeping the commandments of God. And so the second point here we have is 
how should you glorify God in your body in different ethnic or cultural situations? And it's what? Focus on this. Keep the commandments. Obey God. Now, I wrestled with how do you, how do you apply this? You know, there's not too many people knocking on my door and saying, Pastor, I need to meet with you about this. But I thought, you know, really, this deals with ethnic and cultural distinctions. And I think that's something that, especially in a multicultural America, that we are dealing with and we will deal with it more. And I think we tend to elevate our cultural customs, our, sometimes our backgrounds, our ethnic customs, we, we elevate those and actually put, a, put a, an air of, of, of superiority on them. We attach superiority to them. Sometimes we, we, we consider some of our, our customs and some of the ways we do things as, as a mark of spirituality. Like if people did this, they would be more spiritual. Or, and sometimes we can even look down on other ethnic groups and view them as spiritually inferior because they don't, they don't do church and do Christianity and do life like us. And I'm not talking about elements of our culture that are immoral. I'm not talking about like polygamy and homosexuality. Or I was reading a biography about a, a missionary and he was going into cultures where they had cannibalism. Yeah, we're not talking about those cultural things. Like those are things that we should remove from our life. We're talking about just distinctions, differences. We're talking about things that he says like in verse 19. That it doesn't count for anything. How someone dresses, how someone speaks certain customs someone might have. And there's times where we can think and maybe even say, well, that shouldn't be the way they do it. You should do it the way I do it. Or sometimes we can look at, on the other hand, we can go, well, maybe we should be more like that. That seems more spiritual. I think about it in the context of going to a, on a missions trip, maybe a third world country. Have you ever been to somewhere that is very, very poor and you've been to maybe a worship service over there? I've been to Haiti and Honduras and Nicaragua and Indonesia and it's interesting, they have kind of a similar cultural feel, especially in the church. But when, it, when we take groups to those type of settings, many times you go in there and you experience the worship service and um, it's usually very loud. There's many different types of economic situations, but many, many poor people. It's usually very casual. It's, uh, the prayer is usually different. Uh, the music is definitely different. And so it's a different setting. And so sometimes what happens is, is the group that I'm with, they'll, they'll come out and we'll talk that night or throughout the week. And, and on one hand, some people will say, oh, if the American church was just like that. And it's like they, they see these parts of the church, which some of them probably would be good for us to consider. But they see that just like the cultural setting and they go, I wish our churches were like that. And you have other people that are like, man, they just don't do it right. Like, they're, they're, you know, they're really primitive kind of people. You know, it's like really down here. And really, both of those responses are wrong. And I, I always think it's kind of funny when that happens, too, because, like, the whole service is in a language they don't understand. <laughs> but either they're very critical or they're very, like, a, you know, I think it's pretty amazing. But they don't even understand what was said the whole time, so... But why are those both wrong responses? It's because spirituality is not gauged by how you dressed. It's not gauged by your customs, by your poverty, or by your wealth. It's, it's your obedience to God. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. And right, when we worship as a church or you go to a third world country like that and you're worshiping there, I mean, sometimes you see people who are very expressive, like in their singing or even in their praying. And people can look at that and some people go, wow, I should be more like that. And some people look at it and go, oh, that's a little 
top, don't you think? Or, or sometimes when people give, maybe they, we were at a church once, and I remember, and like they had some of their farm animals they were bringing, they had chickens and stuff like that, and you're like, oh, wow, hey, maybe we should do something like that. But you look at that, and you're like, oh, they're just, and then you have someone that gives a check for thousands of dollars, and which one's more spiritual? Which one's better? Is the one the giving chickens, or is the one giving thousands of dollars? And I think the point is here is this, and that is, the, the customs, the externals aren't what we're talking about. We're talking about obeying God from the heart. And there are going to be people who obey God from the heart, and it's going to be very expressive. And you know what? That's okay. And there's going to be some people who obey God from the heart, and it's not going to be as expressive, and that's okay. It's more contemplative. And the application, though, here for us is to keep our focus on serving the Lord through obedience. Like, be discerning when we look at things, but discern this, that God wants us to obey him. Within the context, he has placed us. So don't envy or don't condemn others who just have cultural differences. My prayer for our church, for our community, is that we will be able to reach our community for Christ. I would love to see more people come to Christ in our community. Hopefully you're praying for that. I'm praying for that for our church. But with that, probably means we're going to have people that would come in that have different cultural contexts. They grew up Mexican or Indian or Asian or Middle Eastern, and they, they're saved, and now they're coming to worship with us, and it's going to be different. It's going to make some people uncomfortable because it's not how you've done church before. It's not how you've lived life before, and if God wills that, then it's going to flavor our church in a certain way, but spirituality for the church is not people living like you. It's not people viewing life like you but it's all of us obeying God within the context he places us. And so I think it's probably a good application for us to consider, like how do we apply this text to our life? I think that that might be one way we could consider that. But there are exceptions, right? There are times when we should consider possible exceptions. Even just thinking about here the, the idea of circumcision and Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said that he did not have Pastor Titus circumcised. But then, Acts 16, 3, Paul had Timothy receive that mark. So why is that? Why for one and not for the other? Well, for Timothy, he had him do that so he could minister more effectively. And I think that's actually an exception here. There are times where we will need to change some cultural habits for the good of other people we would go to some people's homes and they were the true Southerners, you know? They had the real accent and I actually said that way too fast because it was so slow. And you have this food in front of you and it's, it's all fried, you know, it's, it's what, what is, collard greens and beans or whatever, you know, and I'm looking at it and I'm, I grew up in Indiana. We had corn and meat, you know what I mean? And casseroles and that was because we didn't have a lot of money. But anyways, the point is, and then you go to someone's house, and maybe they're a lot more spicy food. Their um, culture is a lot different. And as I sit at the table with those people, there's times where I think, I look at that food, and I think, this would not be the food that I would choose. But you know what? I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to enjoy it, and I'm going to try to experience it. Why is that? Like, why do we do that? Because we want to minister to them, right? Or I think about a time where we went to Asia, and we would go into these houses, and everybody took their shoes off. Well, in America, we don't all take our shoes off. But guess what? Over there, we all took our shoes off. Why? 
Because I'm going to a context where I want to minister to people. I even think about a couple years ago, we had um, a Korean boy that came to our home, and he lived in our home. And um, we actually had some other ladies that came in our home as well. And so during that time, we told our kids, hey, kids, take your shoes off when you come into the house, even though many times we don't do that. And why do we do that? For this young man. Like, he didn't understand why we didn't do that. And so we did it for his sake. And so I think there's exceptions to that. But the point is, it's for the sake of serving God and bringing glory to him. How about the next category? And that is in difficult economic situations. This next part could be shocking to some people. Look at verse 20. How should you glorify God in your body, in your employment, economic situation? Well, verse 20. Each one should remain. That's the word abide. Each one should remain, should abide in the condition in which he was called. And again, this calling is talking about us coming to faith in Christ. So were you a bondservant when called, when you came to Christ? Do not be concerned about it. Now think about that last statement. Were you a bondservant? Were you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Let's think about this. In Roman society, two-thirds of the Roman Empire were in some type of slavery. Two-thirds of society were slaves. That's 50 million people. But they were all really all types of slaves. Some were conquered by the Romans, and they were forced to be slaves. Some were actually there by their own choice. They were poor, and they were destitute. They wanted to eat something and have a place to live, so they sold themselves into slavery. Some were mistreated and worked like dogs. Some were more like employees, and the, their master was their boss. Some were in a contract where they said they would work for so many years, develop some certain type of skills, and then they would be free to do something else. But slavery was common, and it was how the economy was run in the Roman Empire. I think we must be careful that we don't superimpose our ideas from our 21st century upon this first century here. I think about in America, what is the most common form of slavery in America? It's human trafficking, I think, as I was kind of thinking through how we might view slavery in America. I think today, I was reading an article that said uh, half a million victims today in America are being sexually trafficked. So that, that's not what he's talking about here. Paul was not addressing this type of human trafficking Human trafficking in America is forcing someone to do something that's immoral. And if someone is forcing you to, to disobey God, to sin against God, the question, the, there, there's no question that you should not do that. And if you can get out of it in any way possible, you should. And so he's not telling you here, don't worry about that. If you were in a situation like that or you saw a girl in a situation like that, no. Do everything you can to get that person out of that, to get yourself out of that. That's wicked, that's wrong, and God does not approve of that. And interesting enough, there actually was a context for them at this time that that would have happened, mostly in the temples, and girls often did this in the temples, and there was a lot of really painful things that happened in those, those places of quote-unquote worship to those false gods. But he's not talking about that, and so I think we've got to be careful. Don't, don't impose your ideas of America today upon that, or also don't impose kind of the ideas of slavery in the 1700s and 1800s upon the, the first century in, in, in America and also in England. Really, slavery was based upon ethnicity and your skin tone. 
And that was not the case back then. It was not how it was. But I also want you to notice in this text, Paul did not condone slavery. He was not approving of this economic system. He was not supporting it. In fact, if you look in the, in the, in the passage here, he actually says in verse 23, don't become a slave. So he's not saying it's a good thing. He's saying, actually, no, it's not something you should do. You not, should not be a part of it. So he was not approving of this system. This is a wicked, terrible institution that was in place at this time. But also, he was not trying to start a political revolution. He wasn't trying to change the culture. He wasn't trying to change society. Paul was speaking to Christians who were living in a certain cultural context. And his goal was to have God change their hearts. And interesting enough, if you consider this, that a society doesn't change by political means or by people just saying, um, you know, hoping, preaching the hope that society will change. Society changes when the heart changes. Paul's first priority was to change, was not to change society or culture, but to have God change the hearts of the people. And when God changes a person's heart, God changes a person's life. When God changes a person's life, God changes the home. And when God changes the home, God changes society. That's actually how it works. If we want societal change, if we want cultural change, then it starts with the heart. Society won't change until the home changes, and the home won't change until people change, and people can't change until God changes their heart. That's why it's so important we give the gospel to people. And so here Paul's going after the heart of these Christians who are in this cultural context, and many of them were slaves. And so verse 21, were you a bondservant when called, when you became a Christian? Don't be concerned about it. Don't worry about it. How can he possibly say that? Well, he gives the answer in verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord. So you, you were saved while you were a servant. You were saved while you were a bondservant. Is a free man of the Lord. You can be a slave in this world and be more free than your master who's free. You see, there's something that is worse than being a slave of another person, and it's being a slave of sin. Spiritual slavery keeps you bound in the shackles of your sin. Spiritual slavery keeps you locked up in the darkness of despair. Spiritual slavery tortures your soul with with guilt and with evil, and a person who is spiritually enslaved is the most miserable person on earth. I think about all these Hollywood stars who live in their mansions, and they're rich, and they're famous, but they're locked up in the misery of drugs, and sin, and depression. And the worst of all, when they die, they'll be separated from God in eternal, hellish misery. And then I think of the servant of the Lord, maybe in some far-off prison in a country that restricts the gospel. Or I think of a servant of the Lord who is in a very low economic situation. They're in pain, they're suffering, they're sacrificing, but they're doing it in joy. They're doing it for the Lord in faith. And then when they die, they wake up in glory. 
They wake up in the presence of God. They wake up in eternal bliss. Which life would you rather have? I think that's what he's putting before us. So you can, you can be in the lowest paid job in Simi Valley, and you can be more content, you can have more joy than the guy that's living in a $10 million mansion on the side of the hill. Because freedom and joy and contentment don't come through economic situations. It comes through what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we are to abide by faith in the divinely appointed role and situation that God has placed us in. And we are to serve the Lord there. We are to serve the Lord in that situation. Notice in verse 22, he says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he, likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. No matter what economic situation you are in, you are a servant of the Lord and therefore you're free. I mean, think about Joseph in Genesis. He's just the one you go back to, right? Because here's a guy who went through some very difficult times, but in Potiphar's house, he served the Lord. In prison, he served the Lord, and God used him greatly. I think about half the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, and many of those letters, he wrote his greatest sermons, and he was where? He was in prison. And one of the greatest sermons he wrote was the book of Philippians, and it's about what? It's about joy in suffering. John Bunyan wrote one of Christianity's bestsellers, The Pilgrim's Progress from Jail. And the point is, many times we think, well, if we're in a difficult place, if, if we went to jail or if we're suffering or we're in a difficult marriage or we have a difficult job, I can't enjoy the Lord there. Like, I got to get to a new place so I can have a better relationship with God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And so consider your current situation. Consider your daily responsibility. You're a mom, you're a dad, you're an employee, you're an employer, you're a homemaker, you, you work with a bunch of Christians. Maybe you have no Christians you work with. What is your mission in that job? Who are you serving in that job? I mean, hopefully you're serving the Lord and you're doing your best for him and you're fulfilling your responsibilities for the glory of God. And you're there to bring Christ to those people. This past week I told a missionary story to the youth at the camp, and it's of a guy named Brother Andrew. You familiar with him? He has a book called God's Smuggler, and God used him in a, a remarkable way to be able to bring millions of Bibles to communist Russia and also the eastern part of uh, the eastern Europe when it was under communism and also China. It's a great book. You should read it. But one of the most interesting parts of the book that I thought about when I came to this right here was after he came to faith in Christ, God put a passion in his heart for the Lord. As happens with many guys that come to faith in Christ out of a very difficult background. He was in the military. He did a lot of really bad things over in the Dutch East Indies. He smoked, he drank, he basically hated the Lord. And then God radically changed his heart with the gospel. And so automatically he thinks what? I want to be a missionary. And so he comes before a church, a pastor prays for him. Afterwards, the pastor sits down with him and talks with him. And he says, he says Andrew, um, you want to be a missionary. So what I want you to do is I want you to go back to your home and tell people about Jesus. 
kind of flipped in what most people think, right? Because most people think, you want to be a missionary? Go to some foreign land. And so Andrew went back home. He worked in a chocolate factory. And in this chocolate factory, there was hundreds of employees. No one was a believer in this whole factory except for one other girl. Her name was Corey. But he worked in this factory, and these people were worse than his military buddies. In fact, he worked in one wing that had over 200 ladies that were working on an assembly line. And his testimony is that these women were as vile and as wicked in their imaginations as the worst soldier in Indonesia. And he was in this context as a Christian, and his purpose of being there was to tell these people about Christ. And slowly, one by one, he invited them to church, he invited them to his house, he gave them the gospel, and people became, uh, came to Christ, they came to faith in Christ. And God used him in a remarkable way to see that company have many, many people come to, in fact, even the president of the company sat down with him and hired him so that he would be in charge of interviewing people coming into that position, into those positions for the purpose of him giving them the gospel because he saw how it radically changed his company. And the point is this, is the point is that we must see our our situations as opportunities to bring Christ to people. And then notice there's exceptions, right? There's exceptions to this. In fact, this is probably the most important exception in here. Verse 21, were you a bondservant when called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom avail, that's a command right there, avail yourself of the opportunity. Take the opportunity. So, so this, these commands here to abide by faith in Christ doesn't mean you say, well, I'm stuck in my situation forever. I guess this is what God has sovereignly ordained. I can't ever d- change anything. No, if you have an opportunity to change it, change it. Like if you can go to trade school and get a, get a better skill, do it. If you can go to uh, school and get some more education, get it. If you can get a better uh, opportunity at your place of employment or a better paycheck, then, then do that. Take that opportunity. I think t- sometimes there's Christians who takes, t- take texts like th- this and excuse their laziness, right? It's like, well, this is what God gave me in life, so I guess I just got to trust God with it. But don't blame God for your foolish decisions. And I think this is a good one for, for you, young people to remember in here. It's actually your choices matter. So we're talking about God's sovereignty, but you can make really stupid decisions in your life, and it's actually your fault. And and so go to the book of Proverbs and and gain some wisdom about that. Like, work really hard. Avail yourself of an opportunity to be able to improve your economic situation. But also some people sometimes find themselves where they go, well, Pastor Ben, I was one of those ones that made a lot of really dumb decisions in life. And you know what's great about the Lord? He's sovereign even over your stupid decisions. And he can redeem that situation that you're in right now. And so there are exceptions to this. And if you can improve your situation, we should. Look at verse 23. You were bought with a price. That's what we should always remember right there. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In verse 24, this is the conclusion here. So brothers... So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, where are you at right now? There, let him remain with God. In those last two words, that's grace right there. With God. God is with you no matter how difficult it is. And let's be honest. You're talking to people here who are slaves. 
Don't you think those last two words, what a blessing to them, remain there. Trust God there. Serve God. God is with you. Let me finish with this. I listened to an autobiography this past week of Booker T. Washington. So it's his personal autobiography. He grew up as a slave in Virginia on a plantation. And it was just fascinating to listen to his, um, him describe growing up on this plantation. One of the most remarkable points of the book was really the simple faith that many of these slaves had. And uh, he was talking about how they would sing. And, and just to describe it, it was, it's pretty remarkable to think about how these these masters, these, these white owners had these amazing mansions, and then these poor black uh, slaves lived just basically on the dirt. He grew up and slept on the dirt floor his whole life. But then he would describe the, the, the joy that many of these slaves had and how many of them trusted in the Lord Jesus, and they sang to the Lord. In fact, after the Emancipation Proclamation, his mom and some of the slaves that were on the, the, the plantation, they were freed. They moved to West Virginia. And many of them wanted to read. And he said, you know why many of them wanted to read? I mean, he had 70 and 80-year-old people who were, had been slaves their whole life, and now they wanted to read. And many of them, because they wanted to improve their situation. But actually, he said many of them, especially some of the older people, wanted to read because they wanted to be able to read the Bible. And one of the descriptions he gave was just the joy of the slaves. And as I listened to that, uh, how these people trusted the Lord and their very difficult situation, I went, wow, many of them were Christians. And then as he described the plantation owners, I thought, they said they were Christians? I don't think they were Christians. And it was like flipped. It was like, that's not how many people think of it. And so he was self-taught. He became an amazing educator. And one of the things he would go around and do is just talk about to really the, the black community how um, they should trust the Lord and how they should try to improve their situation. And, and you know what's interesting about the book, too? It's like he didn't have any type of animosity or bitterness, even towards the people that were his slave owners. It's really interesting to see his faith in the Lord there. But one of the stories he told, I thought I'd end with a story. He, he told this large rally in Atlanta, this story, to try to help encourage them to trust the Lord where they're at. He said there was a boat that was out on the ocean, and these people got lost. It was the middle of the night. It was dark, and uh, they didn't have any water, and they were very thirsty. And so they, they were in the middle of this ocean and couldn't see anywhere around them except for the darkness. And they saw a boat, and they signaled to this boat to, to come and, and help them. And they said, we're thirsty, we need water. And, and the signal that got, they got back was, put your bucket down. Well, they're in the ocean. You don't put your bucket down in salt water. And so they you know, signaled back. They said, no, no, we're thirsty, we're dying of thirst, we need water. You know, send someone over here, please come help us. And they flashed back. They said, no, just put your bucket down. And that happened a couple of times, so eventually they go, whatever. So they put their bucket down, and when they brought the bucket up, they found out that they were actually in fresh water. You see, they were right by the Amazon, and the Amazon pushes so much water out that the water, the fresh water goes 100 miles wide by 250 miles out, and they were in the middle of that. So as they put their bucket down, they were able to pull it up and drink directly from the water there. And Booker T. Washington's message was that you don't know the situation that you're in. I, I mean, I'm sorry, whatever situation that you're in, you don't know what God's doing. And so just put your bucket down. Like God puts you in that situation. And if your heart is open to the Lord and see what God has for you, then, then just trust the Lord. Put your bucket down 
and see what God has for you. And I think, honestly, we are, none of us in here are in as difficult a situation as many of those people were. But we can find ourselves in times of discouragement. And what is God's call to us? Put your bucket down. See what God has for you there. Right? Don't wish your life away. Don't just try to escape everything, but say, God has placed me here. What does God have for me here? And, and as you put your bucket of faith down in the Lord, you know what you find? You find the Lord is with you. And he has a wonderful mission for you in that. Let's pray.